folks, this is Jason here at The High Route. Just a quick intro for me for the third episode of The High Route's Gear Shed podcast. In this episode, Gavin chats with Adam Fabricant and Billy Haas, who are planning a ski expedition for this October to the Southern Hemisphere. We're going to keep this a undisclosed location for the time being. Anyhow, they go through the nitty-gritty details of the gear that they're choosing to bring on the expedition and how they intend to use it. So if you have aspirations of going on a ski expedition yourself, these two have a lot to offer considering how to pack and execute an expedition in a fairly minimalist style. Just take note, make sure to bring enough calories. And just one last note, remember The High Route is a reader-supported website, and we also have listener-supported podcast. So if you enjoy the content and are enjoying the podcast, please consider subscribing. You can find us at thehighroute.com. Don't fear the hyphens. That's the-high-route.com. Okay, here's the episode with Gavin, Billy, and Adam. Hey everyone, we've got Gavin here with Billy and Adam, and today we are back on the Gear Shed podcast from the High Route. We're going to chat a little bit about this uh, expedition that Billy and Adam have coming up, uh, where they're headed down to South America, and they've got an interesting trip planned with some some interesting uh, gear needs, and and yeah, we're going to get into that here, so... Billy and Adam, you guys want to, uh, one of you want to tell us a little bit about what you're up to and the challenges you're facing? Maybe we do a little collab. Well, collab, you want to, you want to set the scene and I'll get technical. Yeah. So mid October, we're flying down to the Andes. We might be vague about our country or specific location because really this is a, a prize ski line that most anyone would be excited to go ski. Uh, but in all seriousness, it's it's an inspiring line, and what's neat about it, especially from a gear perspective, is the challenging strategy that we need to apply. And the main reasons there are that it is extremely remote and requires us to walk for the better part of a week before we'll be at the base of our route, and we have to carry clothing, gear, and food for better part of three weeks, um, traveling up to 6,000 meters, so pretty cold weather kit, and the route is pretty technical. Um, And in this nice mosaic, it combines this North American wilderness ethic that we're accustomed to out here in the Western United States. It combines altitude, and it combines... Uh, extremely challenging steep skiing. So for me, it encompasses all the things that, you know, most people are looking for in an objective. Remote, challenging, and high up in the mountains. Yeah, uh, thanks, Fabs. That was a eloquent introduction on the line. Um, to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of what we're looking at here, just to give people some... Um, background as to why it's a bit of a challenge. Uh, The approach 
depending on essentially where we can drive a car and for any people who've been into the Andes before, how far you can get the car can sometimes determine, uh, how far you have to walk. And that can often be days. Um, but best case scenario, we'd be looking at, uh, about a 24 mile approach over kind of three high points, uh, three high passes, uh, all of them over 14,000 feet. There's essentially a 14,000 foot pass, a 15,000 foot pass and a 16,000 foot pass. Um, I've studied this approach, other approach possibilities at length, and this is the best way to get to this place. We've actually done this approach before. This is our second time attempting this peak. So we've got it somewhat well. We've actually done this approach kind of one and a half times. We've skied some other stuff in the area, but not fully to the base of this peak. So um, we've got it pretty dialed as far as the route. Uh, worst case scenario on the approach, we'd be looking at about 34 to 36 miles in. Um, with us, with packs. Uh, we're looking anywhere from four to five days into our base camp, essentially. What's nice about the approach, biggest benefit here, is because we are going over high passes over a few days, it does give us a pretty good chance to acclimate on our approach, uh, which is huge. It also gives us a really good view of our line, particularly on our last approach day. Um, and it has us camping at around 13,000 feet. So that's kind of the base, the base of the peak is uh, 13,000 feet. The train there's, you know, they're having a good season down there. There's a chance we'll be all on snow, but there's a better chance than not that there'll definitely be some sneaker walking as well. So for those of you who have been to the Andes, you've probably been accustomed to some sneaker walking in the high Andean desert. That's something that Adam and I have seemingly uh, developed a bit of a, a passion for, um, or at least a forte for. So there's there's a lot of considerations. You know, it's like we might even be bringing sneakers, um, probably bringing sneakers. Um, and to give you an idea of the skiing, yeah, you're looking at large alpine ski face up to 50 plus degrees that is glaciated. Um, most likely climbing the face that we intend to ski. There is a walk around line, but most likely climbing the face that we intend to ski. Ice is probably our biggest technical hazard. So there could be a fair bit of alpine ice and route. Um, so we would be going in, uh, obviously prepared for steep technical skiing, but potentially some technical descending with rappels, uh, as well as potentially some technical climbing. Uh, but it would most likely be all on ice, probably not much rock. So just kind of setting the picture, steep, big, icy, ski face. I don't know. Anything else, Fabs? Uh, yeah, I guess one thing to add is that we'll be out there for, I think, 21 days is probably our, our maximum amount of time. And I know something that we really challenged with or were challenged with last time with just ca uh, carrying enough food to stay full and satiated for that much time so like packing the calories um and we're definitely change our food strategy a little bit for sure but yeah and no, i think you covered the the details quite quite well there that's a great segue adam for uh for my next question which is it seems like you all have thought about this a lot and obviously tried it before um so 
talk a little bit about what you learned last time, um, what went well gear-wise, um, food-wise. We can get into that a little bit as well. And, uh, and what, you, what you learned and are going to bring a little differently to the table on this trip. Yeah, I guess um, our, our first attempt was five years ago. And at the time... I don't think we fully comprehended how technical the face was going to be. So I had two tools, but Billy and our other buddy, Aaron, he, they both only had one tool. And I think all three of us had some form of aluminum crampons. And overall, I think we were a little undergunned in terms of just technical tools for the condition of the face that we encountered it in last time. So just going a little bit more robust with our tools and what we're going to have on us. Nothing crazy changing, but I think both Billy and I will each have two tools. We each have steel front points, aluminum heels. Um, So that will be a a change for the better, something that we learned. Yeah, I think uh, to piggyback on Adam, some things we learned, it's it's a... you know, if, if it was the these numbers were for a traverse, they wouldn't be all that impressive. But these approach numbers for an approach into a base camp through this terrain is actually pretty hard. Um, and we're, I think, even more aware that we kind of just need to tighten the belt, so to speak, and um, you know, really slim down on on what we're going to be bringing in there. You know, like we're definitely going to be a little more, um, strict with excess and things like that. Uh, and kind of going with like a traverse style mindset of lightness rather than a get into a base camp style of, uh, you know, equipment. Um, with that in mind, like Adam said, though, the only thing I think we are going to beef up is our, is our technical component. And I think the biggest thing, we'll probably talk about this, is our food. I think Adam already kind of mentioned, but we were a little undergunned on food last time, um, particularly from probably a calorie standpoint. So uh, biggest question mark still for us is how we're going to beef that up but not really add too much weight. Yeah, so for our technical kit, um, we're each going to bring two tools, probably two Petzl gullies, and then a pair of hybrid crampons. Uh, I think the Harfang Alpine hybrids, so a steel toe, aluminum heel. Did I say that right? Harfang? Harfang. Yeah, I think you're right. You're going with the two-piece, not the three-piece Harfang? Yeah. um, I'm still debating, to be honest. If we went with three-piece, I'd take out that middle piece. I don't know if I need that middle piece. Who needs the middle piece? I'm definitely interested to try that, but I don't know if 25 miles in and Chile is where I would try it for the first time. Well, we'll, we'll probably do some beta testing, carpet carpet testing. Although it did just snow a couple feet here in the mountains, so you never know. Then we're each going to have pretty light harnesses, the Chukas light harness, sort of like a Schemo 85-gram kind of thing. We're going to bring one 60-meter rad line, so a 6-mil rope. Um, for a combination of glacier travel, any potential pitched climbing and or repelling, and crevasse rescue as needed. 
And then for other gear we'll have, we haven't hashed out the nitty gritty, but we'll each have a couple of lockers, a couple of non-lockers, maybe one nano traction for the team. We'll each have a, a small blade device, probably Petzl Reversino, and then somewhere between two and four lightweight aluminum um, ice screws for our climbing rack and then a couple pieces of the cord but sort of really minimizing that kit because the chance of using it is low but if we do need it we need to have enough to perform crevasse rescue or belay a pitch of climbing or build a v-thread and for repel whatever we would have to do billy anything to add on the techie gear I mean, I could tell you more or less exactly how many carabiners I'm bringing. What are you bringing? I'm going to bring three lockers, those Gravel Plume K3Ns or whatever, whatever those super light Gravel ones are. I'm bring three of those. I'm bringing yeah, that's f- them. Yeah, I'm going to bring four non-lockers. I'm going to bring a double length uh, sling, Dyneema sling, probably a quad length Dyneema sling, a single Prusik, a knife. And a nano traction, and either one or two ice screws. Like that's that's everything. Is the is the seven centimeter ice screw coming? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, the stubs. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, it's probably not going to be our V thread tool. <laughs> yeah, I'm just currently fondling this new Blue Ice Seven CM ice screw in my hand right now. But now we're probably going to bring you know 19 or 22 more traditional for V threads. Yeah, to be honest, you, you kind of want some of the longer screws there because, like, you've got some pretty rotten ice that you're probably going through, and without having to hack a lot, you could just slam one of those in. So, and, and particularly for threading. I'll also be bringing a V-threader, and I've got two V-threaders. I've got one of those more traditional... We've got one of those more traditional rigid Petzl ones with a hook on the end, but we also have one of those surgical kind of, like, slip things that is a little lighter, but if there is ever potential to be doing a lot of e-threading, those things aren't the fastest. I'd rather just have one of those quick hook fish hook ones that gets it real quick. So, um, honestly, I don't see us doing a lot of e-threading. So I'm probably leaning towards the lightweight little surgical slip one. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, we're, we're not going ice climbing. We're low chance of doing that. One helmet or two? Go ahead, Fabs. Because I think you're going where I was going. <laughs> are we Are we going to have a helmet? Uh, uh, we'll each have a climbing helmet. But but one thing that we were delving into is that we're not going to bring traditional avalanche gear. Um, so we will have some of the, you know, if you think of it, it's a classic beacon shovel probe. We're going to have a shovel and a probe for the team. And the shovel and probe are primarily for camp building. Um, the probe will be for checking out crevasses on the route, um, you know, traveling across the mountains in glaciated terrain, and the shovel will primarily be for camp building, for cooking, getting snow, for melting water, uh, and then we'll carry those when we are climbing and skiing as they're good tools. But it's the concept that we're, we're going alpine climbing with skis on our back instead of we're going ski touring and a winter snowpack with avalanche gear. 
So the idea of leaving the beacons at home can seem a little bold or uh, just reckless. But really, if we encounter a lot of avalanche hazard, we're going to avoid it, whether that means not engaging with it or just waiting and being much more patient and conservative as we're just in too big a terrain to mess with the white dragon. Yeah, and I I, I think this is something that people have asked me a lot about. And, you know, as, as an avalanche forecaster and avalanche educator, I... I, I, I want to make it clear that like, you know, this is something that we th- think a lot about and I think have pretty good understanding of what we're doing here. But like Adam said, we're going alpine climbing with skis to then ski back down. Um, so it's more of an alpine climbing mindset and yeah, there's big snowy mountains, but I'm going to be totally honest. Like once we enter avalanche terrain, once we're on this, you know, this face, this peak, uh, an avalanche, if we're caught in avalanches, we've got bigger issues than being buried. Um, and realistically the avalanche train that we're going to be traveling through to get to the peak is probably more consequential in terms of, I shouldn't say consequential, but is that would be where avalanche, traditional avalanche equipment would be more useful than the face itself and the ski descent itself. And, you know, most of it is fairly benign on the approach with a few descents. And like Adam said, we're just, we're just going to be ultra careful and we understand what we're doing and where we're going and the equipment we have on. And what I always like to say is people were skiing and traveling through avalanche train long before beacons were ever invented. So just like people were climbing safely big mountains long before the locking carabiner was ever invented so it's not i don't know that's just kind of my thought process on that yeah it's not your day-to-day but it is the logical choice for a trip like this uh what are you bringing for a shovel and and a probe do you have some crazy carbon shovel sort of deal or something a little more traditional i i would say bill we haven't discussed it but that new like black diamond sort of light shovel uh it's it's green yeah, I mean, we both, we're both using those new lightweight. Maybe it's like the Transfer LT. What do they call it, Gavin? You know, you know. Yeah, the Transfer LT. I think we're all three of us are using them. Yeah, you you could bring a uh, Venom LT ice tool, one of you, and and skip the shovel handle. Yeah, you know, um, that's mm, that's yeah. probably not gonna <laughs> happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm sort of debating for tools like still between the Blue Ice Aquila and the the Petzl Gully and I've just used the gullies for so many years it feels a little odd to to change it up you know right now but no the the venom the black diamond venom's not really on the table mm-hmm. quite literally like I've, I have a table I've, in front of me with all the tools and that's yeah yeah great shovel like the shovel <laughs> like the shovel but and then for probe probably bring a carbon great shovel carbon probe I've got a carbon BD, like 280 centimeter probe. Yeah. You don't, for glacier travel, you don't really need the long probes. You just kind of want to get the shorter, like 280, 240 centimeter, whatever they come in. Yeah. I do have like a 240 rando. But the, like a more robust one, like the black diamond rather than the, the Arva rando probe that Fabi's got. The Arva, the Arva rando is fine. I mean, realistically for a glacier, you're looking to probe about two meters deep. So as long as it's two meters long and it works. It's it's usable. 
I think the bigger concern is whether it works, but it seems to mostly work. Yeah, it's like two mil cord. You know, going back to our our first podcast, it uh, that cord in there is questionable. That's that's the one with the knot. That's the one with the knot at the end, right? Does, is that the one that has a knot closure? But yeah. as you can tell, like most of these things, we're we're thinking yeah. about our tools differently than a traditional ski tour or even you know spring ski mountaineering mission in the lower forty eight. I've been. I was looking at shovels the other day, and looking at those ice rock ones out of Russia. They make the uh, like a full carbon shovel, and it's pretty amazing. The BD that transfer LT is only about a hundred grams heavier for like a UIAA certified shovel. I was impressed. You know, when Black Diamond does something well, they kind of hit some things out of the park. To be honest. Yeah, I think that's one of them. Yeah, I agree. Adam, what did you want to get into next here? Some camping gear, perhaps? Um, well, I was thinking while we're on like hard goods, maybe just finish off with skis, boots, bindings, skins, like uh, if that makes sense to to all of you. That that does make sense. That's an important. Um, when we attempted this objective a few years back, I took the Black Crow's Orb at ninety-one underfoot which is a great steep skiing ski. However, I found the 91 underfoot to feel a little skinny with the the hefty backpack on my shoulders. So I think this year I'm going to go up a little bit in girth to the, the Black Crow's Camox, which is the red ski. And the model I have is 96 underfoot. The newest version is 95. And I'll, I'll be bringing that in a, a 172 so sort of shorter for the, the ski mountaineering mentality. What about boots and bindings? For bindings, I, I normally go with a Dinafit Expedition binding and something I've been waffling with mainly because my red skis are mounted to the ATK Trofeo is just sticking with the Trofeos or like trying to rebound my super lights on them in the next like week or two. So that'll be a, a photo finish as they say. And then I've got a pair of the pink Pomoka skins that I just read a great article on the high route about uh, changing the tip attachment. And I was going to reach out to you, Gavin, see if that could be a, a project that we could do. Because the reality is we're not doing that much skinning. So making our skins as minimal, as light as possible is sort of fine. And then for boots, I'm going to be bringing the Scarpa f1 xt which is sort of the the lightest or not the lightest but the stiffest boot in the f1 family currently and it's a beefed up version of the f1 lt so instead of a boa and velcro it's got two buckles and it's still sort of a minimalist construction with great range of motion climbs really well but it does not have a lot of heft for skiing but good enough for the torsional rigidity for sort of ski mountaineering style turns and open it up if we're on good snow what's the uh weight penalty between your f1 lt and xt just out of curiosity i want to say it's like under 200 grams i would have expected that you had had those on the scale fab hmm I've got you. I've got you right here. Hold on. I've got it right here. For a pair, the F1 LT for a pair in size 28 
is 2,120 grams. For a pair of the XT, it's 2,388 grams. So, you know, you're looking at a little over 100 grams per foot. Yeah, and I think that really adds to the ski ability. Um, like, I skied the F1 LT for years, and I just didn't like them with even, like, skis 95-ish underfoot. Um, and then the F1 XT, I skied on the red ski three laps on the Grand Teton last year, and I was psyched. Uh, I think that boot and that ski, bread and butter, baby. Um, they, they just it seemed to work well for me, and I'm pretty excited to bring it um, down to the Andes here. Like last spring, I had one descent with my buddy Z, and it was some pretty firm snow, and I just remember having really high-level confidence in that setup. And although that the F1 XT is not that that much lighter than my Technica Zero-G Pro Tours, the range of motion is that much better for this long of a tour. And when we attempted this five years ago, I was on my stripped-down Dinafit Vulcans. So I'm, I'm excited to have something a little better walking nice. underfoot. How about you, Billy? What are you, uh, what are you bringing f- as far as skis, boots, bindings? Yeah, going from the skins up, uh, I'm on the pink Pomocas too, and I'm going to be on Black Crow's Camox, same exact ski as Adam. Um, bindings, I'm going to be on a plume r170 that's been kind of my go-to kind of light to midweight binding of choice lately and then i'm going to be on the zero g peaks the the lighter version the peaks or whatever i started skiing those last spring and was pretty happy with them like adam i'm also on the zero g normals i don't the, just the normal zero G's, the orange ones for my, most of my day to day. Yeah. The tour pro tour pro, sorry, not normal. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that's my, that's my other boot. So I'll be in, I'll be in the peaks. I've kind of consolidated a lot of boots lately. And those are my two that I've been running. Nice. Me so, too. It's a pretty similar setup to Adam more or less. I mean, you're running the same, uh, 172 cam ox. Is that right? Yes, sir. What was the, or was there any consideration towards bringing the uh, Navis, the green ski? It seems like a little bit, like the shape of that ski is a little more steep skiing oriented, but perhaps it's a little, a little heavier and more width than you need necessarily. You know, the, the Navis has been my go-to ski mountaineering ski for many, many missions all over the place. And the main reason I don't want to bring that ski is that I like it with my beefier Technica boots. And for this mission, if like we could drive to the base, I'd probably bring my green Navis and my beefy Technicas and call it good. But the reality is that we've got to walk really far to get there and back. So I'm okay compromising on sort of the downhill ski ability. Um, and then having the red ski and a, a lighter weight boot, but yeah, it's something I think about just cause I really do like how they ski, even though they're a little wider, I'm just used to what I call the platform effect, just like having a little bit more underfoot. Um, so that, that was my thought process there. Yeah. To be honest, Gavin, I was mostly between the camox and the orbs. 
I do think for firm snow and for steep, true steep skiing that the orb was probably the better ski if it's firm, but you know, it's a little thinner, it's a little stiffer, but you know, there could be some soft snow out there and the camox being a little fatter is actually, I think it's either, it's, it's like pretty identical weight to the orb. Correct me if I'm wrong on that fabs. Yeah, very, very, very similar. Yeah, it's very close in weight. So you get a little bit more surface area, which I think could do a little better with the potential for varying conditions. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I I feel like it, uh, yeah, somehow feels natural to be reaching for those wider skis when you're not don't aren't quite sure what the conditions may may be anyways uh do you guys want to talk about about camping gear really exciting topic billy has a tried and tested hilleberg it's the nalo is it technically the nalo too i believe maybe yeah it's uh it's it's probably it's been used for probably close to a decade um, but what's nice about the Nalo is it's got two poles. It, the Hilly or Hilleberg or better known as Hillies, um, they're, the body and the flyer always connected so you can set them up really efficiently. And the Nalo has a built-in vestibule, which for a trip of this length where we're melting snow for water and cooking every morning and night, it's really nice to have that vestibule to cook in, um, it'll be quite comfortable we've done trips with three people in the nalo and that's warm and cozy but you don't have a lot of personal space but the nalo for this kind of trip where like it's a roaming base camp on those nights where it's just we're there for one night we can use our poles and our skis tanker down really efficiently and then when we're at the base of the route we'll we'll set anchor it obviously not with our skis um but I, I really like that tent for this, and it, it does really well in the winds, which, um, newsflash, the Andes are very windy, and we're going to sort of the high central Andes. Um, very, very windy, and we're, we're probably going to endure some windstorms down there, and the Nalo can handle that. I like the Nalo. It's a good tent. and I, I will fully admit that we, we were trying to get our hands on one of those Samaya tents, um, just didn't pan out, but I wasn't that concerned because I, I do really like the Hillebergs and I do really like the Nalo and, um, funny story about the Nalo on a previous trip to the Andes, it was myself, Adam and our friend, Matt Promomo. And if anyone's ever slept in the Nalo, it's designed that if you have, it's all head to head to head because the foot side slopes down pretty aggressively. <laughs> and um, we told this to Matt and we were doing three in this tent. It's a, it's a snuggly three. I'll be pretty honest. It is a very snuggly three, but like um, we're like, so it's head to head to head. And he's like, oh, that's, that's BS. Like I'm not doing that. So he decides to sleep head to toe, but it's like the fabric is like in your face. And the whole time he's like complaining about this. And um and we're all like, dude, it's because you're doing it wrong. And we ended up skiing this beautiful peak uh, called Cerebello on that trip. And 
he decided to name the descent Gleaming in the Tube <laughs> because that's how he said he felt the entire time because it's kind of this yellow interior that would get like this bright sunshine through it. So he said the entire time he was gleaming in the tube. Um, I think he probably wrote an article about it somewhere too. But um, So if anyone wonders where that name comes from, it's from Matt using the tent <laughs> wrong. He, he continued to sleep in it like that. Night after night. Um, I believe we sacrificed a salmon uh, on the summit of Cerebeo. Anyway, <laughs> coming back. So we're, we're going to have the hilly with us, which, I mean, yeah. the, the hilly's comfy. Yeah, and for a trip like this where we might have some prolonged tent time, it's sort of nice. And then the rest of our sleep kit. We're it's, comfy, each- it's comfy for two. It's comfy for two. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's not say luxury, but, you know, comfort plus. If, like, if you're on an airline, comfort plus. That's a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's better than all the times we spent a first light down in the Andes where the first light's literally getting like blown over yeah. sideways. You're just like watching the tent poles yeah. just like yeah. bend. We're, we're not doing that. Yeah. We digress. So yeah, go into the other <laughs> sleep system because we have a little bit of a cool thing that we acquired thanks to you, Gavin. Yeah. So I guess for sleeping pads, well, or just starting with the, the basics, we're each going to have a foam pad. Um, I always like to have a foam and a blow-up pad when I'm sleeping on snow. And then for a blow-up... Are you, are you going like Z-Rest? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thermarest. I'm going to show you something next time I see you for a foam pad that would save you some weight. Like a like a roll-up eighth-inch EVA okay. thing. Well, we're going to go with... It might save you like 300 grams. Well, I'm going to go with Gavin's <laughs> roll-up eight-inch EVA thing. And then probably just a trip. Yeah. That's a lot of grams. couscous. That, that's like a couple candy bars. That's a lot of couscous. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um. <laughs> Shit, I'm bringing my, I'm bringing my zero G normals. Then. Yeah. I might be bringing the green skis. And then one of those silver or gray therm sort of like their warmer, higher R value insulative pad. The X Therm. Yeah, the X Therm. And have you guys gotten new new X Therms in the last year or so, or are you still rocking the old ones? Because they just came out with new ones. No, I, I tried to order one last week. They charged me, and then two days later, they they canceled the order because it was out of stock. So, ah, uh, shoot. Um, I just got I, a new I might X Light, and it's pretty nice. It's a lot less crinkly than the old ones. Mm. The blue one? Uh, the yellow one. Oh, yeah. I've, I'm bringing a yellow. I'm bringing a yellow. Yeah, the new ones are a lot quieter and a little more comfy. That sounds nice. To be totally honest, with the wind, it doesn't really matter down there. Yeah. <laughs> but for sleeping bags, um, for years, Billy and I have both used these Montbell bags. And the Montbell ones are great because they have this like stretch system in them. So they're just really comfy. Um, but both of our bags were pretty beat street and just had lost a lot of loft insulation over the years. So we went to the drawing board. We're looking at sleeping bags. We're talking about Gavin building us sleeping bags. And then sort of went to the classic American go-tos, you know, Feathered Friend and Western Mountaineering. And Gavin turned us on to these North Face bags. Um, they're called the AMK, the Advanced Mount Kit 10. I have two sitting right next to me. I just bought on eBay. They ship from Florida. <laughs> Can't be that cold in Florida. Um, and they're 10 degree bags with thousand fill down. And they look pretty nice. Um, so for this trip, 
the highest we'll sleep at is 14-ish. So that that should be enough to stay warm and cozy. And if we need to sleep with a pair of down pants on or our parka, well, we've got those tools with us. But yeah, these, these North Face Advanced Mountain Kit 10-degree bags, the, a few years ago, the North Face sort of did a push where they made a lot of really high-end gear for some of their athletes to take to the greater ranges. And when they put their head to it, they can make some really nice gear. And these bags are 100, 150 grams lighter than most bags in their weight class. So pretty psyched to, to test these out down there. Yeah, the idea came to me when you were when we were chatting about um, how warm your bag needed to be. And a couple of years ago, I was up at 14 on Denali with uh, with our friend and coworker Slater, and he was using that AMK 10 degree bag, and he had another bag that he was planning to uh, kind of layer with it. And I just remember that every night at 14, he never actually pulled the other bag up over himself that the 10 degree was warm enough. And so when you were saying, think 14 camp on Denali, I was like, oh, you know, that that AMK bag is impressively small and light and seems to be, yeah, just quite warm. And I, and I think, you know, to give people an idea of temps we'll be seeing at 13,000 feet, which will be around the highest we're going to be sleeping in the Andes in mid-October. It's not crazy cold. You can definitely get some cold nights, but I'd be shocked if we have a night that gets down to zero degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, no, it's not the same cold. I don't know if, if you feel different, Adam, but I'd be shocked, yeah, if we get a zero degree Fahrenheit. It'd have to be a really clear, like, just chilly air mass. Well, we're, we're just going to go for it, and I mean... Like we're we're not going on a comfort trip here. This isn't a hut trip. Uh, like that. Like we want to be a little cold. That's when you're doing it right. A little cold. Not like you need to do sit ups, but you know you got to sleep with your parka on on the coldest night. Whatever. You got to do that every night. Nah, that's not ideal. But yeah, that that's our sleep system. Yeah, I hope uh, I hope you guys stay warm and you don't you don't come back mad at me for. For my sleeping bag recommendation. <laughs> what about clothing? And we don't have to go through every single layer. I don't really care what you're bringing for socks unless they're heated or something interesting. But uh, but what about like parkas? Are you bringing hard shells? Some of those basics, down pants. For, for a parka, I think I'm going to bring the Arteryx uh, Alpha Light. It's like a just under 500 gram parka and that should be pretty comfy. And what I like about that compared to other parkas is I can easily ski in it, find some of the biggest parkas. It's like challenging to have underneath my backpack while I'm climbing or skiing. So this guy seems pretty perfect. I'd say it's like designed for 5,000 meters in North America or 6,000 meters in South America and still exceptionally light. And then I'll have two other insulative layers below it. Um, a sun hoodie and probably like a running hard shell. So like a really lightweight hard shell. And that'll be my whole upper body system. Like the, are you going to bring the old Norvan SL? The the new Norvan. Hard just shell? To, yeah. 
Yeah, got one okay. of them coming today. Is that lighter than the than the Alpha Anorak that we all have? I'm gonna have to put them both on the scale when they get here. But yeah, so so I'll bring a running hard shell. And the reality is, like the 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 Norvan is is definitively lighter. <laughs> Without context, this isn't gonna. This was a this was an argument that the three of us had at, at the crag the other day. We got into it about what the lightest hard shell was. But but for the hard shell there, like we're we're well above tree line. If we're in any major storms, we're we're not um going out and climbing or skiing too much we're more staying put more of a wind yeah it's like a wind layer so we actually might end up wearing them quite a bit i'm not really worried about too too much precip but we'll just be staying put if that happens and then the lower body i'll have a pair of long underwear whatever's least holy pair of soft shell pants and then a lightweight pair of down pants so not like the huge expedition style parka pants, but and I will have no hard shell on the lower body. What uh, what kind of down pants are those? They're these older uh, Arteryx down pants that, like, they're called the Adam. Um, our friend Brenton had them, and I, I acquired them, and they're pretty sweet. Uh, but like full zip, full function, but pretty lightweight. And what's nice is that you can actually move uphill and generate heat in them without like completely overheating compared to my other insulated pant is I think they're called the but they're from Black Diamond the the belay pant or something or like the and stance or something the stance and they're they're great for like moving really slow but they're a little too warm to climb or ski in with any intensity yeah i imagine the adam pants kind of like the adam jacket that is correct like sort of breathable puffy yeah it's like literally the same uh fabric and synthetic synthetic insulation in them and i yeah i like synthetic puffy pants uh they're more streamlined and so that's like my my top to bottom kit how about you billy anything notably different on your side or um no not really uh mostly just the patagonia equivalents of everything adam just said you know my puffy pants are going to be dos pants but the older version of the dos pant which i actually like a little better i'm deciding if my heavy park is going to be a dos or a grade seven i've gone away with the dos in the past and the new doses are pretty light so i might just go with that yeah probably dos Micro puff, R1 sun hoodie, and some kind of shell in in that mix. Yeah, yeah, pretty simple. I I think I'm gonna bring down socks instead of down booties because last time we attempted this, we had our ski boots. Obviously, we had sneakers, and we had down booties, and that was that was just too much. Um, so I think the down socks and then the sneakers, cause you can sort of wear the sneakers on snow around camp. And then you've got the down socks for like in the tent, if it's super cold. And then last time I had had frostbite recently and I had over boots and I think I'm not going to bring over boots this time. Rather, I know I'm not going to cause they're in Talkeetna 
So definitely not bringing my overboots. And I'm leaning toward not bringing my heated socks. I, I do use the lens heated socks quite a bit uh, at the win- in the winter here at home. But I'm thinking about just foregoing them. And then on the for the hands, just a pair of liner gloves and probably two pair of a medium weight and a heavyweight ski glove. Wow, three pairs of gloves is a lot for you. Yeah, I, you sort of need the liner glove. I don't know, maybe two pair. I'll have to, I'll have to mull that one over. But you you need the liner glove. You know, you live in a liner glove on an expedition. For context, I've I've never seen Adam. Yeah, I've never seen Adam bring more than one pair of gloves on a ski tour, which has always been sort of incredible to me. Yeah, I'm normally a, a one glove, one glove goer, one glover, <laughs> one a one one glove man. Yep. Yeah, I just bring the warmest glove I'm gonna need for the day, and then I wear that all day. But on a trip like this, I think definitely at least two because I'm I love liner gloves for the ski expedition, but. Works really good until you drop a glove. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to think on that. Are you all running white gas stoves for the trip or or canisters? White gas, baby. I love the smell of white gas in the morning. Yeah, I just got a brand new MSR, brand new Whisper Light. And wow. Just, just keeping it simple. You just go through too many canisters. There's one thing that, that just makes me feel like I'm on an expedition. Spilling white gas on your hands. It's that smell of white gas. <laughs> the smell of white gas is one way that I know the no, that I know I'm on an expedition. The other way I know I'm on an expedition is I just have the permanent black soot all in my fingers, you know, and you just have that. Because I'm kind of the stove tech when things break. The computer tech and the stove which tech. Which I'm fine with. I want to not go too far with my computer skills. Um, <laughs> it's relative. But like, I don't know. Oh, in, in all realisticness, though, Pepsina Blanca. Yeah, yeah, we've had some interesting experiences with white gas down in South America because you can't just buy Coleman white gas down there. Um, to give you an idea, we've you know I, when I used to guide down on Aconcagua or other places, like you know, I've had a lot of different experiences with it, and you got to actually. It, it's not a guarantee that like you can get it easily, but usually what we do is we go to like one of the big Jumbo hardware stores or, or, or convenience stores and you actually have to go to like the paint section and it's called, it, it, it's called Bencima Blanca and it's, it's, they essentially use it as a paint thinner. Um, but it's the same chemical as white gas as like Coleman white gas. Um, but like if you do go down to South America, Argentina or Chile, like, finding white gas is not as easy as just buying Coleman cans. And, um, I've had bad white gas before where they had put this white gas in old Coca-Cola bottles. And there was actually just the tiniest bit of Coca-Cola still in there. They didn't like clean them out good enough. And then the Coca-Cola burned and it totally, all the sugar in the Coca-Cola like clogged up our, clogged up our stoves really bad. Yeah. And I know you've used what kerosene Adam before, um, down there so it we've gotten pretty good at finding it but like my kerosene is just it, it's pretty sooty um even if you have a stove that's designed for kerosene it's pretty sooty yeah no we were cleaning the stoves constantly and we were so stressed on running out of fuel that i ended up 
Am, am yeah, I talking? Hear you. you guys hear me? <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, I get confused <laughs> on the color. So, okay. Yeah, but we, so we were nervous about running out of fuel when we had the kerosene. So I did this one push on this 5,000 meter peak and I had garlic cloves in my water because we were using the pasta water from the night before. And I just remember it's like four in the morning or something. And I go to drink out of my water and I get a full garlic clove and like almost throw up kind of thing. And I'm like, oh gosh, like what are we doing? Isn't that when you got gingivitis too? Yeah. Just that. That just brought yeah, me back. I think, I think you got gingivitis on that one. Too. That was a different oh, trip okay. when I got gingy. When you got the gingy, yeah. yeah. Just a, yeah. you know, normal person yeah. living in modern yeah. society getting gingivitis, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, but but we've gotten fairly so. But we've yeah, we've well, gotten fairly getting white gas, yeah. and it's it's just it's just better than the cans, and it I it, it I think it just works better. It's more more reliable and that you don't have the warm up time and, and, and the excess waste and, and, and stuff like that, but you do got to work to find it. So Bencima Blanca, usually it comes in a bottle in the, in the paint thinner section. <laughs> that is a good pro tip. You're going to save somebody's yeah. trip at some point with that one. And, and if you know white gas, you kind of go down there. We'll like open it up to like make sure and we'll like smell it. And it kind of yeah. smells like white gas. You're like, okay, we got the right stuff. The, the people around you at the hardware store are a bit concerned, but. <laughs> <laughs> and then Adam like passes out. It's fine. <laughs> what, uh, what are you, what are you putting it all in? Yeah. Then we'll, we'll just go with a simple setup. Just one oh. pot, like we'll bring one pot and one pot. Um, we won't do any cooking per se. We'll just make hot water for breakfast and for dinner, and bring food that all we need to do is add hot water to. And a that's just simple, but also if you're not cooking, you need less fuel, which means less weight. So we'll just try to go with a really streamlined system. When we went a few years ago, we brought. Only oatmeal and only couscous, and we were always hungry, and that that didn't work perfectly. So we'll probably still have some oatmeal and still have some couscous. So so let's we should go back a little bit in context on how that happened. We we're trying to go as light as possible, and I don't know if this is true, and and if these people want to chime in and correct us, but. Adam and I had heard or had convinced ourselves that when Jimmy, Chin, uh, Conrad, and uh, Renan went on Meru, that they only brought couscous and that it was couscous was the most efficient weight to calorie food that you could have. And couscous is also sick if you haven't brought it on trips. It you really just add hot water and it like you know it's like ramen, so it it doesn't really require any cooking. And we we actually didn't really do much research. We just assumed that that was the case. So we brought all this couscous and we had it like measured out for like the calorie amount, you know? So we, we did a little bit of homework on that. We didn't verify the concept though. And then we beefed it up a little bit with like these flavor packets and we're doing this all down there. I remember we actually bought a scale in the grocery store down there and we, we beefed it up with some flavor soup packets and we had like three flavors. There was like mushroom, tomato and like asparagus it was 
freaking terrible. And then I think we added some like, um, we added some like bullion cubes. So everyone got like a little bit, their ration of couscous, their soup packet and a bullion cube. And I think that was it. <laughs> and we were like grossly undernourished. <laughs> like essentially we just ate couscous. <laughs> I picturing Aaron. I, I was getting headaches. And that, that scenario is kind of hilarious. He was probably pretty mad. Yeah, I mean, I was yeah. rationing how many cookies I had left every day. I would like count them like, all right, 11. I can have one cookie. I'd fondle it, then I'd eat it. And then when we got back to pretty close to the trailhead, like there was crumbs because you're at these hot springs that people sometimes visit um, over the weekends. And there's crumbs from bread. And I just started like eating the crumbs. <laughs> oh my gosh. Adam was eating the freaking bread yeah, crumbs. <laughs> I was so hungry. And uh, so we we don't have an exact plan yet. Like I, we were texting today about you know, some protein powder, but we, we've got to, we've got to eat more food because like I'm already thinking about like the lack of food. It's real. But yeah, still going with minimal. Are you going to, are you going to beef up a little bit in the next couple of weeks? Extra ice cream in the diet? That's a whole other podcast, Gavin, but um, <laughs> body composition and ski mountaineering objectives <laughs> or high altitude objectives. But one thing we're considering with some of these meal, meal meal replacement stuff. There's like this one brand called Rec Pack, R-E-C Pack. That's like a meal supplement. And then some of these protein powders. So maybe we could still go with some kind of maybe rotating. Maybe we have like a ramen, a couscous, and a dehydrated something. And have this, this is what we're kind of talking about right now. And so we have a ramen, a couscous, and a dehydrated meal. Three, three different types with different flavors and stuff. And then to add a bit more nutrition to those we each are going to have maybe a serving of some kind of this meal replacement or protein shake or something like that to like just get a little bit more in for our particularly for our dinner meals still going oatmeal for breakfast well well, i'll be on the oatmeal program but billy normally just goes like for a bar for breakfast yeah i'm usually like a a barman adam's usually more like an oatmeal man but both of us don't drink coffee so there's not much going on in the morning. <laughs> like we could be realistically up and out of a tent in 15 to 30 minutes to go. Yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, just trying to keep it simple. We don't dislike people who drink coffee, but we definitely like on trips, we'll like, we'll all wake up and then Adam and I will just stare at them while they like brew up their coffee and Adam gives them like a scowl. <laughs> yeah. You don't wake up at three in the morning just to chill. So, uh, that's advantageous in a lot of ways. Well, that is, that is correct. But yeah, then, then for lunch, we'll just have more traditional mountain food, uh, selection of bars. We'll bring down some of our favorites with us, probably some salami, the cheese in, in, uh, South America is, it's, it's just not, it's not as, uh, it, they, they don't have, I mean, like, you know, like anyone who's been in to Latin American countries, they just don't have like the selection of cheeses. It's mostly these soft cheeses. One time Adam wanted to get something that was more like a cheddar. And in our bad Spanish, he's trying to ask for a, a firmer queso mas dura. For a for a harder cheese. So he's trying to say duro, duro, like mas duro. And the guy gets gives him like a huge thing of Parmesan. And Adam's like, all right, that's fine, this hard cheese. And <laughs> 
it was fine. We had a kilo I mean, of parm. We had a kilo of parm, but he's out there like gnawing on this. And on not actually the trip that we almost starved, but the another trip, he's like sitting there eating his <laughs> parm and he's like and he's like and it's and it's got a wax coating, right? Not a rind. Not a rind. And he's like, Can I eat the rind? And I'm like, That's not rind, that's wax. And he's like, looks that's- at me. You he probably goes, ate it Can slowly. I eat the wax? <laughs> and I and I'm just like, I don't see why not. I don't think it's gonna hurt you. I think it'll be fine. And I just watch him eat the wax. <laughs> he looks at me. He's like, there was a little bit of cheese on it. That's what he says. <laughs> no, we were we were well provisioned on that trip, which makes that story even more. We ridiculous. were not that well provisioned. That's not exaggerate. Um, but but you know to give to give an outline of lunch food i mean i bet we're somewhere in the five to seven pounds of snack food each and that wasn't the trip that he was starving yeah which for three weeks is it's tight it's tight but inadequate (laughs) it's all relative a a well-fed denali client is five to seven pounds of snacks per week per week per week yeah yeah. But but I'm not really that strategic on Denali, you know? Like, it's a different style. So when you get a bit more strategic, you can stretch that pretty, weight. Pretty tight. I was, I was I was would think the context there would be like a well-fed Denali client is bringing three five to seven pound bags of snacks. Yeah. I'm going to also experiment a bit more. Like, I've been using more the last year or two some more like electrolyte. Like, I, I like those noon tablets. I'm going to bring those more. I don't know. It's just more to get in me. So uh, it doesn't weigh that much. Yeah, and and I want to look into like powder calories, you know, whether it's more protein stuff or some green mixes. Because it's not all just like numbers, like getting enough calories, but also. Absolutely. You're not bringing caramels and Fritos and, well, maybe those. Yeah, like my, my thought is have something in the morning with breakfast and something every night that are like additional calories, but also additional nutrients just because like the reality is we're not getting enough and it's fine if we come back like, you know, a little malnourished, but as long as that doesn't really happen until we go on our summit attempt. So yeah, it's, it's a different, interesting way of send before you starve. And then we've got an empanada place on the way back, uh, Rio Seco. Yeah, totally. great empanada spot. And uh, yeah, looking forward to that already. I like that. That's the that's the only uh, specific location beta given so far is is the empanada place. Any other <laughs> gear stuff, Gavin? We want to talk about? I guess packs. And I know you were just showing me your. Your new pack, is that going to take the place of the old reliable Hyperlite? Yeah, so for years on these kind of like bigger um, expeditions where I got to carry all my stuff, Hyperlites have been my go-to. I've used a 70 liter and an 85 liter, but I just got today uh, a, a Blue Ice Stash pack. They're these new super light but really large. They come in 60 and 90 liters. And I think that's what I'm going to be taking on this trip. And I'm pretty excited about it. They seem really minimal, but big enough to carry everything. So 
that's that's what I'm going to go for. And what's nice about either this or the Hyperlay, really any pack for a trip like this is you need to carry everything well enough for your day-to-day when you're moving, but then it also needs to get small enough so that you can climb and ski your main objective with a small pack without feeling like you're using this massive, heavy, like super rigid with a lot of structure to it. Like you want you want something that feels more like your normal day-to-day ski touring pack. Yeah, it seems like Hyperlite had that market cornered in a way the last few years um, as far as that, yeah, big pack that you can pack down and and can climb and ski well. Um, but, but yeah, those, those blue ice packs seem seem pretty freaking sweet is it lighter than the hyperlights you've been using uh i think i think size for size it is yeah but by, by a couple hundred grams oh wow yeah that's yeah, yeah. By, by a couple hundred grams so th- they're definitely lighter but they also like i can tell like uh, i haven't used it yet but they're not as durable i can say with high confidence which is fine for a trip like this you know like i'm not worried about it failing on the trip but the hyperlights Sure, they get beat up and used and abused, but they're quite durable. While this is something that's a little lighter, a little more streamlined, but that thinner material, I doubt, is going to be used on 10 expeditions and still be going strong. I, I always have found it fascinating. Obviously, I think about backpacks a lot. That Those big packs have, it's like a different wear that they see. Like they see wear in in my mind on those stress points of like the shoulder strap attachments and the hip belt attachments, um, or where you're strapping things on to the outside of the pack, things like that. A lot more so in my experience than um, than like the main body fabric of the pack, like a our day to day like skiing and climbing packs. I think often where they see wear is from carrying skis or chimneying or like rubbing on rock and things like that. Um, but yeah, anyways, I think sort of a vote of confidence for the blue ice that, that perhaps that light fabric isn't as much of a detriment as, as it would be on a, on like a rock climbing pack, say. In a nice way, like we're, we're trying not to take that much stuff. So there's not too much else to talk about. It's really just our ski gear, our clothing, our food. For entertainment, we can look at each other and talk. Yeah, we'll we'll have an in-reach for the team. We'll have a very minimal, but we will have a first aid and repair kit. Like, like, well, we'll think about what we might need to fix, but very minimal creature comforts. Yeah, there's there's only a few things that volet straps can't fix. As far as ski gear goes, <laughs> I'm going to go out there and say my like repair kit for expeditions, like maybe it's just me and I've been lucky and I'm willing to accept a bit of like catastrophe here, but like I've never had a major repair that was like ultra critical, like a zipper busted on a sleeping bag once and it was fine. Yeah. yeah like I, I just taped it, you know, like I don't, I don't know if, if you Adam have had something, but yeah, we'll probably each have like two volet straps but we're, we're not going to have the kitchen sink and and that's sort of just our mentality with a trip like this is sort of less is more 
we won't have a solar panel. We'll have one battery pack that we'll share. And we'll be strategic with, we're both not going to stare at our navigation system on our phone at the same time. Have you looked at any of, any of, uh, Griffin Post has like a new solar panel company? He would be an interesting person to, to chat with about that. I haven't seen that. I think that a lot of it is geared towards film expeditions and bigger solar panels, but I think he has some small ones and I, I've seen them in there. The general panel design, at least for the size, is impressive, light, and compact. What's the name? What's the name of this company? Ah, uh, that <laughs> what, I actually what, yeah, what's am it not called? sure. GriffinPostSolar.com, like Cruxley. Cruxley. I'm I'm looking at it now. It's called Cruxley. Yeah. Do we need to send him a message? I can start bugging him right now. Okay, Cruxley. So yeah. But but well we're overall we're going with a pretty simple system here. In the past, literally, like we have the phone at night and we're like, all right, we can play one song and we listen to one song and then we just sort of sit there in silence and be like, That was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, yeah, no, we literally we literally like give ourselves we literally get ourselves like one song. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to imagine you two sitting there in silence, but <laughs> This is actually something, Adam, I've, I've been looking into some ultralight solar chargers that it could be more worth having one of those than a battery pack because it never runs out. But that's still TBD. I've just been looking into it. I've been looking at the weight comparisons. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i just going to say this real quick. I just did a little research. Cruxley Speedgoat 25 watt is 312 grams. And the lighter one of the lighter options I had been looking at with this was this Rhino Tough. That was 480 grams and pumping similar wattage. So I might be buying a Cruxley Speedgoat 25. Cool little thing. That's just did my research for me. That's why we're having this podcast. Thanks, Gavin. It's sort of nice and like we're just not overburdened with a lot of electronics. You know, there's no film gear. Um, but we'll probably have, you know, our we'll have our phones for some videos and pictures. Maybe we'll bring one camera to document but we're we're just trying to keep it simple and like go into the mountains and not have what some people would call safety gear, um, but also creature comforts. So uh, I really relish in that simplicity and practicality of like what we're thinking about with our gear. And I, I love the strategy behind it and the geeking out's really fun. And it's always fun to get back and be like, huh, that sounded like a great idea sitting on my couch in Wyoming and, that was a bad idea when I was up there, but I think any of those small things will be nuances and not like major systems. Yeah, hopefully there's no uh, major oversights, no couscous incidents this trip. Oh, I know, me too, buddy. Well, uh, we'll have to check back in um, once you two are back back home uh, at the end of October here, and and. Uh, see how everything went and and we can revisit our ideas that we talked about on this on this show and and see if there's any major uh major flaws in our thinking here that would be nice (laughs) that would be nice but i'm really hoping that when we walk out of the trailhead that our packs without skis but with water and everything else, 
they weigh under 60 pounds is a goal. And that we were 60-ish last time. And that, that, that hurt. You know, that, that, that's, that feels heavy. Uh, I'm frail. But uh, so I think the lighter we can get, the better for something like this, which means we can put more food in, which is great because I'm a big eater, small man, big eater. Speaking of walking out of the trailhead, um, bringing sneakers, that might be the last last thing in the backpack. Well, we did last time, and it wasn't like it wasn't critical, but it was nice. There was like a few days where we wore them for like five plus miles, but they're having a really good snow year. But but let's be honest, on the dry side, there's no snow. We know that. It blows away. With our camp booty set up with the down socks, I'm doing the same thing. And um, it works fine. And we'll get a lightweight pair of sneakers, Adam. They're called the what? The It's the Norvan SL. Um, I, don't, I don't think Arteryx is making those shoes anymore. I checked today. They just came out with a Norvan SL3 oh, this summer. I wonder if they're just deleted from the website for the winter. That could be worth an email to someone. Well, if they don't have the Norvan SL3, I'm probably just going to bring my old beat-ass TX2s. Um, just being honest. <laughs> that's what I brought last time. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking as well, if I if I couldn't get a hold of something lighter. Yeah, those Norvans seem like a pretty sweet deal for for what you're using them for. I had a pair a couple of years ago, and they're not great day-to-day running shoes. They didn't last very long, but... But they sure are light. Yeah, I mean, heck, we could burn them if we don't eat them. Go Jed Porter style. You could bring Crocs and eat them. Can you eat a Croc? <laughs> I think so. Well, this just changed the whole game, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> That's my pro tip of the of the podcast. Eat, eat your Crocs at the end of the trip. It's better than crumbs at the hot springs. I mean, <laughs> hopefully this was helpful for, for people just to kind of see where our head's at. I mean... It's nothing revolutionary, but I think it's amazing what you can get by with. Like you really don't need a lot of stuff. Yeah. And I think that applying some of these concepts, you know, when I hear you guys talking about all this, I'm like, oh, this, you know, this sounds like a pretty reasonable kit for a week long trip. And it's, it's super impressive that, that you're able to pull this off and go so light over the course of three weeks is like really a big, uh, yeah, it's a big deal. Um, but I think that these concepts and conversations hopefully are helpful and apply, um, down the line for folks that are planning their own trips or traverses or things like that to just think about things a little differently and, and kind of look into those ultralight concepts and, uh, and some of that more niche gear to try to to shave their weight down as much as possible because no one likes carrying a heavy backpack. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> just another one of Fabby's strange sayings that he just throws in in certain times. <laughs> what was the one you said the other day that made absolutely zero sense? I'm saying. I don't know. Adam has an uncanny he has an uncanny ability to combine two sayings into one 
and then it takes you like about a minute to decipher what he's trying to say. I think that's the way the cookie crumbles is like a uh, anchorman thing, right? He's got that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Easy, easy come, easy go. Easy come, easy go. But yeah, sweet. Well, I mean, if that's it, like pretty psyched. Hopefully that was informative. So I, I just checked, Bill, that they still make those lightweight shoes. So I got to see if we can get some. Yeah. Thank you guys for, uh, for taking the time to sit down and hopefully, uh, you've got a couple new ideas to look into over the next couple weeks as you get ready for the trip and, and yeah, uh, make sure you eat enough. (laughs) Pack on the calories. Thanks for listening to the high route gear shed podcast for the time being. If you have questions for us about the gear, mentioned on this episode feel free to send an email to gavin at gavin at thehighroute.com don't forget those hyphens in that email address Uh, speaking of hyphens you can also support us at thehighroute.com as well thanks the theme music for the high route gearship podcast comes from the band storms in the hill country and the album the self transforming you're hearing the track Beautiful Alien. We'll link to the music in the show notes and our website. That you brought back, that you brought back from the seventh dimension.